I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. With Purim coming up, I can't help but bring in a little bit about Purim as it relates to anger. You know, as we get older and we don't get as involved in Purim as we may have when we were kids, we start wondering if it's just a holiday for children. But the truth is, is it's one of my favorite holidays. It's a very, very, very deep and multi-layered holiday, which we say that even after Mashiach comes, all other holidays will be abolished and Purim will be the only one that we celebrate. So what is it about this holiday? We're not going to go into it too deeply. Maybe next week I'll give a sheer on it. But in terms of how it relates to anger. So last week um, we had, uh, we, we read, it's called Parshat Shkalim. Shkalim was that the Jewish people, uh, you, you're, not, you're not allowed to count people in Judaism, right? Because by counting people and giving them a number the way the Nazis did it, in Germany is a form of dehumanization. So we believe that you do not count people because people cannot be a number. And so the way that the census was taken is the Jews would give a half a shekel and the money would go towards the functioning of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. But the question that the rabbis asked was why half a shekel? So the symbolism of half a shekel was to allude to the idea that a Jew, when he's alone and not part of the community, is not a full person, is a half a person, right? And that it's only when the Jewish people are together, as we said, as a seaboard, Sadiqim, Benoni, Rishaim, a group, a community all together, that we are complete. And this theme of achdut, of, of unity, is a theme that runs through the holiday of Purim. For example, the four, four mitzvahs that we actually are obligated to uh, do on the day of Purim all have to do with this idea of unity. First of all, we all gather together and we read the Megillah, right? We come together as, a, as communities and we hear the Megillah being read. Secondly, we uh, have a su'uda. We have a, 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 a large meal where we invite our family and our friends. And again, the idea is that we get together and we, you know, celebrate uh, our interconnectedness. And there's another mitzvah, matanot le'evyoni, where we give gifts to the poor, right? We reach out to those who may be more uh, naturally or, you know, be put off by but on forum we're told that you give to everybody anybody who stretches out their hand you know if all year long you're very scrupulous about who you give to on forum you give give generously and without checking into anybody's uh you know whether they're saying the truth or not you just give and that's the idea of unity as well and of course mishloach manot right we give gifts to one another now, the reason that Achdut, that unity is so important, we're told, I just read a book about, uh, written this year with the coronavirus regarding Mashiach. It's called The End Illuminated. And one of the themes there is that the prerequisite to Mashiach coming as well is the unity of the Jewish people. 
And we know that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. Uh, we're told there that we were we were like one person with one soul, with one heart. And the interesting thing about Purim is that Purim is the day um, when we're told that the Jewish people re-accepted the Torah. The Torah that they had received on Mount Sinai, which they accepted sort of more out of fear and awe. You know, the mountain was shaking, it was smoking, they heard God, you know, they, they, they saw this, the voices and they had this out-of-body experience, right? They, God himself spoke to them, the first two commandments were told. It was a awe-inspiring, fearful kind of experience. Um, Purim, on the other hand, we're told that we re-accepted the Torah and this time we accepted it with love. We recognize that God had saved us from this evil man named Haman, and we reaccepted the Torah on this higher level of love. Is everybody muted? Please mute yourself if you're not, please. I think somebody is muted. I don't know who it is. Um, check your buttons. Okay. Um, okay, so... Torah, of course, again, the prerequisite for receiving the Torah, whether at Har Sinai or on Purim, is unity. The prerequisite for the Mashiach coming to our world, for him uh, revealing himself, so to speak, because he's in every generation. But whether or not he reveals himself is dependent on the Jewish people getting their act together and being unified. Okay, just a little bit more. Anger is a major theme in the Purim story as well, right? The Purim story opens with the story of Vashti, who refuses to come to the party. She doesn't listen. She doesn't obey. A very common reason for not just Ahasuerus to get angry, but for all of us to get angry, right? We want to be in control. We want to be the boss. We want to be listened to and respected. In this story, of course, Ahasuerus is the king. He has her beheaded. And of course, we said a few weeks ago, he regrets his, his anger and what, what, what it caused. But of course, it's too late. His queen is dead. And this is one of the themes of the Megillah, the anger that basically runs amok. We have the same idea with Haman, right? Who was Haman? Haman was this wealthy, uh, honored person who had family, who had 10 sons, who was very high up in the courts. And yet over and over again in the Megillah, we're told that every time he sees Mordechai, He's completely unraveled and he can't take it that this one Jew, right? Everybody else in the kingdom bows down to him, gives him all his homage and one Jew doesn't do it and he wants to wipe out everybody. And it's actually very chilling and interesting, but there is an allusion to Haman at the very beginning of the Torah in the story of, the, of Adam and Eve. We all know the story of Adam and Chava. Adam and Chava were given one mitzvah. The entire world belonged to them. Right? Bishvilin ivraha olam. The whole world was created for me. That's what Adam and Chava were able to say. Okay? And they had one mitzvah not to eat from this one tree. 
And listen to this, guys. After they eat from it, God says to them, you know, they, they realize they're naked, right? And he said, and he said, meaning God, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And in the Hebrew, the word is hamin ha'etz, asher tziviticha. Anyway, did you eat from this tree? Hamin ha'etz. The same word hamin, if you just change the vowels underneath, is the name of Haman. And the idea here is that this is human nature. We can have everything. But if there's one thing we're missing, or one thing that person doesn't do for us, or one thing in our life that, you know, we can't have or we can't control, unfortunately, with anger, we can destroy everything that we've built, that we have. This is the nature of anger. This is the nature of the destruction of anger. Anger, the root is, I must have it. It has to be my way or the highway. If I can't have it, I will destroy somebody, something, whether it's other people, whether it's myself. And the idea of unity, really, when we think about it in terms of anger, is based on making limits. We're going to talk about that today. You know, the opposite of anger is patience. And that has to do with making limits, borders on your wants and your needs. And using anger, like we said earlier and other classes, not as a tool, but as a message to yourself that either something has to change in you, that you have to work on yourself of being less arrogant, me-centered, ego-centered. It has to be my way or the highway. Or... The situation has to be changed, which again is a valid reason for anger letting us know that there's something wrong with the situation. I need more time. I need more uh, warning of what's going to happen. I need uh, to go, go and relax when I'm in this kind of uh, mood, whatever it is. But anger is not supposed to be used as a tool. And the last idea is that Haman tells Ahasuerus, the way that Haman convinces Ahasuerus that this is a great time to be able to annihilate the Jewish people, is he explains to them, we can kill them because they are mifuzar umiforad. Okay, in chapter three, he says, there's a people that live in our kingdom who are scattered and dispersed. And what he's alluding to is that they are ununified. They are disunified. And when the Jewish people are disunified, every evil dictator understood that God would not be with them and that this was an opportune time to attack. So anger creates separation between people. It creates disunity, not only within ourselves, right? We become ego dystonic. Who was that person? I don't know who that was who just went wild and crazy, right? And it, it separates us between other people. And so the antidote and Baruch Hashem, together, all of you wonderful women here who together with me are working on our midot, doing the hard inner work of really taking a good look at ourselves, 
asking ourselves the questions, what gets me angry? You know, what are my triggers? How can I use my anger to grow myself instead of destroying other people? To move up, like we said, anger is fire, right? We're all, we all have fire in us. How can we use that fire to move up levels with this passion of growth, but not by destroying other people, right? Okay, using it to learn about ourselves and become better. Okay, so I want to go on and talk about the antidote, one of the antidotes to anger. The Ramchal at the beginning of our series, we spoke about the different types of angry people. And we said that one of the variables that exists is uh, something called um, FID, frequency, intensity, and duration. Again, we're all born with different homers. Some people are just born with a more angry temperament, right? Their frequency is a lot. They can be like the first category, the rugzun, who everything makes them angry. It gets them uppity whenever something doesn't go their way, whenever somebody says something they don't like. And it's a terrible way to have to live. Okay? And then, of course, you know, the intensity. How long does it last when you get angry? Sorry, not how long does it last? How intense is it? You know, how uh, bent out of shape do you get when you get angry? What's your primary response like? How soon? And that's duration. How soon are you able to come back to your equilibrium and be able to address your anger and have a secondary response that's more measured and more of how you want to respond in your primary response, right? How, how, uh, how long does that take? So frequency, intensity, and duration all tell us about ourselves and our level of our homer in terms of our anger. But again, God does not punish us or expect of us more than what he created us as. He gives us rope because he knows how difficult it is for those of us who have a more passionate homer. And so all the work that we do and every effort that we make to regain ourselves, to try harder, to pick ourselves up, to not beat ourselves up as a response, which is the response of the Yetzirah that wants us to say, just forget it. I'll never get there, right? Um, that is all very precious to Hashem. And that's called surah. That's called taking your raw materials and using them to become a better person. And only Hashem knows how hard you might work at it. And only Hashem knows how far you've traveled in terms of the spiritual distance to conquer yourself, right? We say, Ezehu Gibor, who is the strong man? Hakovesh es Yitzro, the one who is able to control his inclination, his anger, right? Not the one who can destroy a whole city as the Mishnah goes on, but the one who can control himself. He is the true Gibor. Okay, so that's what we're doing. So what we're going to talk about today, and I alluded to it in, in other class, is one of the antidotes 
or the main antidote to uh, anger is patience, is sablanus, is learning how to be a more patient person, not demanding everything right now the way it needs to, the way I want it to be. That's working on patience. So again, the interesting thing about the word patience is it has a lot of meaning. The root of the word is saval, right? But the word sablanut means patience. The word sovlanut means tolerance, which are related to each other to be able to tolerate, right? People with anger have a low frustration tolerance. They, they get frustrated easily. People who are less angered easily have a higher, have higher tolerance for frustration, right? So the word patience and tolerance, and then we said that the word for a porter, Rav Volba, who was a muster master in our generation, says the word sabal is a porter. And he explains that the connection is that in every relationship, you are carrying the weight of the relationship. In the early stages of a relationship, it could have been a lot lighter, you know? And the example is, you know, when you're dating somebody, right? They're not so heavy, you know, you're, you're in love. Everything they do is great. You love, you know, they're very light. But then you get married, right? <laughs> That's the way to destroy a good friendship, right? You get married and all of a sudden, as time goes on, they become heavier. Their idiosyncrasies, their habits, the things that you wish they would change, you know? All of these things become heavier. You know, even with our children, right? When they were a baby, they were cute. They weren't so heavy. By the time they become teenagers, they're pretty tough to carry. So the porter is the symbol of the relationships that we carry. Um, so what is ka'as? As we said, ka'as, externalized anger, is like the porter who suddenly takes the heavy piece of furniture that he's carrying. And he says, I can't take this anymore. I can't carry this anymore. And he flips it off his shoulders and it goes smashing down the flight of stairs, right? Your new washing machine that he was bringing up or your nice new uh, armoire, right? And he lets it smash down and it smashes on the bottom flight, okay? So when we do that, when we explode, we're basically flipping off the relationship and saying, I can't take you anymore. Get out of here. It's too much. I'm, I'm, I'm overloaded. Can't handle this. Okay. And it's very destructive. Either we say something, but we do something that breaks the connection. Now, again, the opposite of ka'as is to be sovel, is to tolerate, is to be patient. And sablanut means the ability to bear the relationship <clears throat> even when it's heavy. A good porter knows how to shift the weight of the object that he's carrying, right? He knows sometimes to put it down lightly, to take a break so that he'll be able to pick it up again. So this is the image I want all of us to visualize right? 
the porter who's a real expert at his trade. Yes, it's very heavy, but you know, what can I do to make the load a little lighter when I feel that it's becoming too much? What can I do for myself, self-care? How can I give myself the space I need? How can I say how I feel with the words, oh, I feel like I'm getting really annoyed now. Oh, I feel like I need to go outside and take a walk. Oh, I really need to leave this room right now because it's, you know, this is what triggers me when there's a lot of people and it's sensory overload and everybody wants me and I can't. I just have to go somewhere quiet and breathe, right? Okay, so um, <clears throat> you're carrying precious cargo and you wanna be able to bear it without, without it crashing. So the altar of Kelm, who was the um, Rebbe, I believe, of the Yeshiva of Navardic, which, which was a Yeshiva in Europe, which was very much involved in self-character development. The altar of Kelm, I believe, was the Rebbe of Rabbi Yisroel Salanter, who, who really made the Musser movement famous, or it's the opposite. He was the student of Rabbi Yisroel. I have to look that up. But this was all part of a stream of rabbis who focused on internally correcting one's midot because the idea is that the Torah cannot rest on somebody whose character traits are not in order. Okay, and again, it's a lifelong work as Rabbi Yisrael Salant or the Chafetz Chaim said, um, it takes 70 years to change one mida, right? It's easier to learn the entire Talmud than to change one character trait just a little bit that you were born with, okay? But this is the real work. So he asked the question, how do you raise your tolerance level? How do you become less frustrated, which is what leads to anger? So this is translated from the Hebrew, from his Sefer. He says, a very important part of being a person, of being a mensch, is to work to be patient so that you will not become overwhelmed when somebody does something against your will. So, you know, Dina Schoonmaker gives an example that you're at a wedding and somebody steps on, you know, somebody who's wearing very high heels steps on your toe while you're dancing in the circle, right? So she said, you know, so one person can have a primary response of, ow! you know, like totally lose it, scream, right? Which, you know, is understandable. It hurts, right? Um, or she says a person who's more composed and doesn't allow themselves to get to be like that, you know, might bear the pain quietly and tell themselves, you know, it's okay, you know, and not get so moved externally when they're in pain, physical pain, Okay. I like to say that, you know, if you're Canadian and somebody steps on your toe like that, you'll probably say, sorry, sorry, my foot was where you wanted to step, you know, that kind of thing. Sorry that we want the vaccines. Sure, go ahead. Go ahead of me. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Sorry, 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 sorry. Right. If you're Canadian, you might say, sorry, my face was in the door that you wanted to slam, you know, whatever. Anyway, the point is. 
because most people will say, ow. <clears throat> so the truth is the altar of Kelm says it's actually not so good to be shaken up by my frustration. And this is the goal. So that was an extreme example with the, you know, the stiletto coming down on your foot. But the idea is you don't want to get so shaken up by whatever it is that happens. Now, it's true that your primary response may be that you quickly get frustrated. Your secondary response would be to ask yourself, how shaken up do I get when I'm frustrated? And try to make the secondary response less intense. Okay, we're going to talk about how to do that, because that's not so simple. So again, the Mishnah says, who is the strong man? The one who controls his inclination. When he's frustrated and he wants to yell and get upset or get angry, he controls himself. So the altar of Kelm goes on to explain, what we want to do here is to control or conquer your rutzon. What does the word rutzon mean? Rutzon is the word will, your desire. Right? It comes from the word rats, which means to run, to run with something, right? When you're running with something and you have to control your rut zone. And he goes on to say, so that it should not spread out. The heat parade means to spread out. <clears throat> so what he means by this is that when a person wants something or is frustrated by something, it takes over him. This is called spreading out. There's a way of experiencing, experiencing something so that it won't take over, so that it doesn't have to take over you. <clears throat> okay, so this is an example that uh, he gives, and I'm going to give you a few examples of this. When you know that you cannot do something, no matter what, you are very able to limit yourself and keep those boundaries. You know, it's a fascinating thing, for example, if you teach your children from the time they're little that there's kosher and there's not kosher and we don't eat not kosher, when you're at the checkout line at the uh, you know store and there's all kinds of things there that aren't kosher, your child won't even think of wanting it. As soon as you say it's not kosher, can't have it, there's no tantrum involved because they've been so trained to know this is off limits, okay? Um, and it's amazing how the, you know, the worst spoiled kid will still accept that. You know, the kid who will tantrum at a moment's notice for something else, they'll accept that. And we all have those areas. So the example Dina Schoonmaker says is, you know, let's say it's Shabbos and you received a letter in the mail that you were waiting for, and you even go to the mailbox to check that it's there, okay? But you know, because it's Shabbos, there is no way you're opening that letter, right? Because we're not allowed to open packages that are not food or something that we need immediately, <clears throat> okay? So you know in your mind, it's off limits. I'll find out afterwards. I'll open it as soon as Shabbos is over, right? But she says, but what about if you receive a letter during the week? And it's a letter that you really shouldn't open until your wife gets home because it's really for her, right? But you're really curious and 
you know, you know, it's something important about, you know, some issue or something that she's expecting. <clears throat> so in this case, you know, it's not a halacha, you're not, it's not asur, it's not forbidden to open this letter. So, you know, you can't help yourself and you say, you know what, well, maybe I should just peek at it. Maybe I'll just, you know, I'll, 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 I'll put some steam on the, uh, you know, and I'll open it up and then I'll reseal it, whatever it is, right? Maybe I'll open it. She won't mind, you know? And then you say, no, no, I really shouldn't. I really should wait till she gets home, right? And you keep going back to it. You keep saying, oh, you know what? I, I don't think she'll care. I'm going to open it. Okay. You know, and you keep going back and forth and vacillating between should I, shouldn't I? I don't know. This is what we call spreading out. Okay. The limit and the boundary isn't clear. <clears throat> it shows a form of a lack of patience is what the altar of Kelm is telling us. So Dina gives a, 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 an example maybe we can all relate to. She says, imagine you have a delicious dairy ice cream in your freezer, but you just had a steak dinner. Okay. So, you know, you might open the freezer and see that delicious dairy ice cream, but Again, it's like that letter in the mail on Shabbos. You're, you're like, I'm not eating that. I mean, it's not even a thought in my mind that I'm going to eat this ice cream now. But she said, well, what if it's during the week and you're on a diet, right? <laughs> and you open up the freezer and there's that delicious Ben and Jerry's Haagen-Dazs, whatever it is you like, okay? And it's like, how many times do you go back and forth to the freezer and say, oh, you know what? Oh. No, I can't. I was so good today. Oh, I've been so good this week. You know, uh, or you go back and say, okay, I, I can have a spoonful. You know, I can have a, a little bit, right? Anyway, the point is it, it's an issue. And it's, it's the, the idea again is that it's spreading out. There's, there's no clear borders, okay? And this is how the altar of Kelm describes this idea of spreading out. So when it's halacha, when it's actually law, we can easily put the thought away, right? We think it for an instant and we say, no, what, why even bother thinking about that? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to waste my time thinking about, you know, eating the ice cream after I just, you know, I'm still got steak dribbling down my face. You know, it's not going to happen, right? Um, because when there's ratzon, it comes up once and then it's not revisited. It's not revisited. However, in the second case, when something's not clearly forbidden, right? When it would be nice if I could wait till my wife gets home before I do this or, you know, not eat the ice cream, the thought keeps getting revisited. You know, well, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe I could, maybe I should, right? And he says, this is an example of something spreading out, not having clear boundaries and of us not being, um, in control, there's a struggle. Okay? Because part of patience is learning to limit your rutsum, limit what you want. Okay. Being able to say, you know what, I'm not thinking about this anymore. I'm not going there. I'm not ruminating on this. So she gives the example of the difference between a patient child and an impatient child. You know, you're coming home from a long car ride, it's boiling hot in the, you know, outside, it's summertime, and you have one kid in the car who's going, and, and both kids are thirsty, okay, they both need a drink, 
but you've got one kid who's going, you know, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I want a drink. Mom, it's so hot in here. Come on. Where's a drink? Can we stop to 7-Eleven? Come on. I'm so thirsty. Right. And mom, mom keeps saying, we're going to be home in 15 minutes and you're going to get a drink then. Right. And the other kids also is thirsty. And the other kid says, I'm thirsty too, mom. And mom says, we're going to be home in 15 minutes and I'm going to give you a delicious drink. Okay. And the second kid is able to say, okay. And he goes back to reading his book or playing his game and he's able to handle it. Okay, again, home air and, you know, different home airs. So the first kid can't get over his lack of thirst. It's taking over him. It's spreading. It's affecting the atmosphere. It's affecting the car ride. It's affecting your mood, right? It's spreading all over the place, but the first kid's able to shut it off. And the second kid can't get rid of the initial thought. And he, he, there's no way that he can be patient. He's unable to limit his rutsum. You know, and the voice that's coming up over and over again in his mind is, I want this to stop. I don't want to be thirsty, right? Or I want this to happen. I want mom to pull over and get me a 7-Eleven Slurpees. And what's happening is when we're impatient, what I'm describing here is we experience the discomfort over and over and over again, right? We keep going back, like going back to the ice cream in the freezer, right? Like going back to the letter. Should I open it? Should I open it? I don't know. Should I open it? So we keep going back to have that same feeling of discomfort and reliving it over and over and over again, right? We all know this, right? When you're in a lineup, you know, at Metro or wherever, and you're in a rush, and you have to go somewhere. And, you know, you can't believe how slow the line is moving and everybody's saying sorry and everybody's saying, you know, how was your day? And it's so nice. And people, Canadians are so friendly and they're so, you know, polite. But, you know, you're going crazy, like, I remember when we moved back from New York, my daughter, you know, they were teenagers in Brooklyn, right? They'd be like, what is going on in Canada? It takes forever to get out of the store. You know, you, we guys don't realize how slow we are here. Like, we are slow, okay? And if you live in Edmonton and you just look like you're going to cross the street when we moved to Edmonton, if you just look at the street, okay, the cars stop, like, already, like, 10 car, you know, there's 10 car spaces and the car is already stopping because maybe you want to cross the street right okay anyway i've got some brooklyn people on here they're going really there are people who, okay anyway the point is <clears throat> is that's what we do we say <clears throat> i can't believe this line i can't believe how long that lady's taking i can't believe she's getting out her visa now like where was she like you know what is going on what what do you mean you don't know how much the onions are? Come on, right? And you're going, right? Or or you could be saying, hmm, I think I'm just going to start reviewing uh, everything Devorah taught me on anger. Or, you know, do I know all the parshas of the week in order? Maybe I can work on that, whatever. Or maybe I'll just grab a magazine here, you know, and read something while I'm waiting. The point is, is we have the ability <clears throat> to overpay for our discomfort which is really the definition of impatience. Okay. Maybe I'll do this here because I think it fits in. So the altar of Kelm says, you know what, let me find it. The altar of Kelm says that impatience, an impatient person 
is not an honest person. He's not honest. Okay, now what is the connection between honesty and patience? Okay, so he gives an analogy. He says, imagine you're in a store and you ask the storekeeper, how much is this? And the storekeeper says, it's $10. And you give him $100. And he looks at you like you're crazy. And he says, I told you it was only 10, it's only $10. Why are you giving me a hundred dollars? And he figures, you know, either you're giving him counterfeit money or, you know, you're just not normal and you know, what's going on. So basically when he says that the, um, the impatient person is not honest, the idea is, is that is that he's overpaying for the experience, okay? He's paying too much for the experience that he's going through. He's allowing the discomfort of the moment to be replayed over and over and over again. And he's paying too much. You know, when we're in a situation that is not to our liking, we can say, oh, I'm hot. Oh, I'm thirsty oh, I'm going to be late because this lady isn't moving in the line. And we can either continue to repeat it till we get ourselves all worked up, which is like the guy who's paying, overpaying for the item. Or we can distract ourselves and say things like, everything's in the hands of heaven, except for my, my behavior, right? God is controlling everything, the traffic lights, the lady in front of me. This is a test. Do not adjust your set. You know, this is just a test, right? How am I going to handle this? Am I going to overpay for the experience or am I going to distract myself and do something else with my mind? You know, maybe I'll say, let go and let God. Maybe I'll say, Hashem, who Hamelach, God, you are the king, right? Hashem, you are controlling. If you're controlling every leaf that falls from the tree, then I guess you're part of this lineup too. I guess you're part of this person not cooperating. I guess you're part of this uh, situation not going the way I wanted it to, right? And again, it's the, why is he doing this to me? It's plugging in the bitachon as well, as opposed to what is going on with that crazy lady in front of me. This is not easy to do. This is a practice. You know, yoga is a practice. This is a practice. This is a practice of mindfulness, Jewish mindfulness, not just, you know, um, you know, um, being mindfully focused on total unconsciousness or uh, nothingness, but rather Jewish mindfulness would be locking into a higher truth, a taking yourself out of illusion and locking into reality, which is, yes, you are not in control. You are not in control. So the impatient person is not honest, meaning because he's overpaying like the sky in the store. He's overpaying for something when he, you know, he's not, he's not paying what, what the real price is. Okay. Um, and here too, the idea with pain in this world, any kind of pain, which is including frustration, is that there's a certain measure of pain that we're all supposed to get. 
and life is full of pain. And God gives us all pain. But there is a concept in terms of free will that we can choose our pain, right? As some, one of my friends said, you know, one thing is certain in life is that we're going to have pain. That's out of our control. But what's in our control is how much we'll suffer from it. What's in our control is our choice of how much we're going to suffer from that pain. And this is another idea of the altar of Kelm, is that Hashem needs you to suffer a certain amount of frustration and pain. But it's up to you whether you let it spread out and overtake you and repeat to yourself over and over again how terrible this is, how thirsty I am, how late I'm going to be. And when we do that, what we do is we're overpaying for the pain, for the experience that's happening that's not in our control. We're overpaying. Now, overpaying is anathema to Jewish women, okay? We don't like to overpay for anything. So if any other idea can lock this idea into your head, it's that we don't want to overpay, right? We want to bargain. We don't want to overpay for an experience that was only meant to bring us frustration and discomfort once and pay for it a hundred times. So one, you know, like these kids in the car, right? One kid is enjoying the rest of the ride. His mother said, we're going to be home in 15 minutes. You know, I know you're thirsty and I'll take care of it. So that kid goes right back to his book, to his game, to his this, to his that. And he says, okay. Um, but the other kid's paying over and over and over again for the pain of being thirsty. So the idea is, is I'm already frustrated once. I don't want to overpay. I don't want to keep on being frustrated because by doing that, it's making me overpay. And we're people who, there are people who do this in situations even when it's their own fault, right? Even when we mess up. People who punish themselves with bitterness and go for, for the bitterness in their lives, right? Their bitterness in their own lives, the pain that was inflicted on them in their own lives. They'll go over and over and over something that wasn't so pleasant, okay? Now, these are people who become victims over and over again. We know people like that. They take away from their own quality of life because they're overpaying. They're wasting emotions. For an example, a woman who, you know, was a Holocaust survivor, let's say that's an extreme example, or let's say somebody who was a child of Holocaust survivors, right? So there's an example of a woman who was going over and over and over again about all the hardships that she suffered being the child of Holocaust survivors and how difficult and terrible it was. And all of a sudden, I think Dina Schoomaker was there and the facilitator of this meeting banged on the table really hard. And he says to her, listen, the first 40 years of your life were ruined because of this experience. Do you want it? You want the next 40 years to be ruined by it as well? Guess we'll have to say it was a Holocaust survivor because 80, 40, and 40 80. But whatever it is, it doesn't, you don't have to be a Holocaust survivor. You don't have to have suffered very much. But that's your choice. Yes, there are things that we can't control that are thrown at us. There's a certain amount of pain 
that we have to endure in this world, but why make it worse? Or why prolong it? Or why focus on it and overpay for the experience? So what do you overpay for? That's a question to ask yourselves. What do you overpay for? What is it in your life that gets you so frustrated and hot under the collar and over and over again, even if it was something that happened in the past, something that you ruminate over, something that you go back to, even if it's about yourself, oh, I'm so stupid, I can't believe I did that. If I'd only done it this way, if I'd only been like that, if I only would have you know, had her kids, her husband, whatever it was, if only we overpay we overpay for the pain. You know, the kid who doesn't get what they want at their birthday party, right? So the whole birthday party's ruined. The whole day is ruined, right? They didn't get their toy. So, you know, you were taken to the, to par to the park, but they can't have fun at the park anymore, right? Because everything was ruined. So, you know, we can say objectively, isn't it a shame that this kid is willing to ruin everything? and rob themselves of the good energy that they could have had all day, but instead they're miserable at their own birthday party, right? Because that's not the cake that I wanted. I wanted that toy, but I wanted it in red, not in blue, you know? Okay, we say, gee whiz, poor kid, but we do the same thing. We do the same thing, right? with different toys and different things that we want. Okay, you know, let's say you lose your wallet, right? So who are you punishing if you say, I have, I'm gonna have a miserable day now. I, I'm gonna just be miserable all day until I find this wallet. I'm gonna have a miserable Shabbos because of it, because I still haven't found it. I'm gonna have a miserable life, you know, if, if I don't find this wallet, right? The choice is up to us. What can we do instead? We can into Hashem, Hashem, I know, you know, I lost the wallet. This is painful. Can you please help me find it? I'd really appreciate finding it. I'd love to find it. I'll make my efforts. I'll call the places that I was, right? And then I'll let go and I'll let God. And yes, if this is some pain that I have to endure, I'll try to use it as an exercise of mindfulness, Jewish mindfulness of recognizing that it's not in my control. It's not always in my control. I can overpay for the experience or I can pay once. I decide how much pain, how much suffering I'm going to have by whatever pain was, was, was okay. So when you do this, you're causing yourself a disservice. Again, it's the concept of overpaying. Watch this in yourself and watch this in others. I'll tell you another story just before we end. So Dina Schoomaker tells the story of a woman who was a new Balchuva. And, uh, you know, she was reading everything voraciously. 
to know how to you know be a good Jew. And uh, you know, she was reading books on how to keep Shabbat and reading books on how to keep kosher and reading books on how to dress and all of this stuff. And together with all of that, she took out a book on how to run a Jewish home or how, you know, how to create, how to create a Jewish home. And basically the same way that she read these books on what you can do and not do on Shabbat and how you dress and everything else. She also read this book. And in that book, it said a Jewish home in a Jewish home, there is never any anger. Okay. And she, when she read this, because she was so like pure and just so wide-eyed and bushy-tailed to know everything, she literally read it as if she was reading, you're not allowed to mix meat and milk. Like it was the gospel. There was no, you know, I can't eat meat and milk. I'm not allowed to get angry in my house. And she explained to Dina Schoonmaker that because that's how she read it and how she came to this in this Jewish book, she literally stopped getting angry completely. She never got angry because she read it like, you know, don't turn on the light on Shabbos. Don't get angry in your house. Like, can you imagine? But here again, it was the idea of she created some kind of boundary, you know, this is not allowed. And so it became something that I, I just don't return to, like I return to the ice cream in the, in the freezer, even though I'm on it. I, I can't do it. You know, a Jewish home doesn't have anger. Anyway, it was just the power of the mind. Again, that kid who will tantrum in a minute if you're in a kosher supermarket and he's not getting his kosher candy, right? But, you know, in a, in a non-Jewish place where there's nothing kosher and you say, sorry, sorry, nothing kosher here. They completely are able to like go, okay, right? No problem. So this is the idea that Impatience is when we spread out. It's our rut zone, our will, our desire for things. And the idea that the altar of Kelm is teaching us is to be mugbil, mugbil on your rut zone, mugbil from the word gavul. Create a boundary, create a border around your rut zone. So what it does is it says to me myself, I'm not going to be shaken up over this. I'm not going to reprocess this over and over again because I'm putting a boundary on myself. Oh my gosh, that was really frustrating, but I'm going to move on. Now, again, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy and many of us will not be able to move on. We'll keep reprocessing it, right? That's our primary response. Even that is part of a primary response where you keep going over and over and over again. And that's what spreading out means. It's affecting my davening. It's affecting my relationships. It's affecting my ability to smile. It's affecting my ability to, to, to be happy. It's affecting this. It's affecting that, right? It's like, it's like some, uh, you know, some sweater your mother bought you that's itchy, right? And the whole day you're like going, oh, God. You know, my mother loved when I loved me wearing turtlenecks. You know, she just, I love turtlenecks. She just loved turtlenecks. I hated turtlenecks. You know, I'd be like in school with a turtleneck on going, you know, pulling it off my neck, right? Okay, I don't know. Anybody loves, hates. Okay, now I, those mock turtlenecks, they, thank God, they're fine. But, you know, it's like you can spend the whole day going, I can't believe I'm in this turtleneck. I can't believe I'm wearing this itchy sweater. I can't believe this is happening to me, right? 
and reprocess the discomfort over and over again. But the key is to distract yourself. I had this actually happen this Shabbos. So, you know, th there's a light in our living room and it's attached to a Shabbos box. And, you know, it doesn't bother my husband at all. But for me, I don't know when I'm sitting and reading, all I can hear is tick, 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 tick. It's like a time bomb going off. It's like, what's going to happen? Like, you know, like, and I can't concentrate on my reading. And I, you know, and then in the other room, there's the same thing, tick, 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 tick on, on another light. And I thought, okay, this is it. The whole Shabbos is ruined. I'm going to have to go read, you know, in, in my bedroom, whatever. But it was incredible how it was just about, you know, how sometimes you hear something so loudly and then when your mind is somewhere else, it disappears. Well, that's what happened. Now, on the other hand, we're not going to have that tick, tick, tick on that light anymore. Not, not where I sit and read. Because my husband said, it's easy. I can fix that. We can put a different one on that doesn't make that noise. Okay, so here's an example where... I could have, I mean, and I did. The minute he walked in from shul, of course, I not don't have great self-control in this area. I can't stand this ticking, you know? Like, it's driving me crazy. You know, and, and the funny thing is, is very often during the week after Shabbos, I've removed the Shabbos clock from that plug so that next week it won't be on a Shabbos clock. But he doesn't know that I do that purposefully. And he puts it back on with the tick, 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 because he figures it just fell out or, you know, whatever, I was cleaning. Anyway, the point is, again, we have a choice. We can focus on that and go over and over the discomfort of it, or we can even stop hearing it just by distracting ourselves and saying, you know what, it's okay, I'll change the situation, I can live with this the way it is right now. And I'm not going to drive myself. I can move to another room or not. The amazing thing that I kept saying to myself on Shabbos is, I didn't even hear it for this last hour that I was reading. Wow, I didn't hear it. You know, unless I tuned into it again and realized how loud it was and how much it sounded like a ticking time bomb, I didn't hear it. So I just thought that was a very good analogy for myself of, you know, okay, so we're going to end here and we're going to talk about next week, God willing, also an idea from the altar of Calm about how we can preempt our response to something by knowing, you know, what we're going into, what's going to be happening and getting ourselves ready for it so that we can have a kind of response to the situation that's more in line with the kind of, you know, primary response that we'd like to get to. Okay. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And I love seeing all your beautiful faces.